Money Sense is brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group, four-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com and listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just north of I-94, between Highway 164 and Highway F in Ridgeview Corporate Park, and also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. For today's show, I'd like to welcome back Dick Schiller, Chartered Financial Analyst, uh, with Pavlik Investment Advisors. Uh, Dick has been a guest on our show numerous times in the past. Dick and his uh, partner, Terry Pavlik, uh, have been running a portfolio strategy for Ellen Becker for several years now, uh, core fixed income. And with that, uh, Dick brings a wealth of knowledge in terms of markets and a number of other things relative to our field. So we're very happy to have him back. Dick, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for having me, Jamie. Great to be back. Absolutely. So today, you know, we've got a lot of things that we want to talk about. More or less, it's going to be a fourth quarter update. Uh, we're squarely almost in the middle of the fourth quarter. Uh, we're, today, we're going to revisit where we left off when we got together in July. We're going to look at some charts, which is hard for our listeners to see, but we're going to talk about them and share some of the facts that we uh, have outlined as important or relevant. Uh, we're also going to look in, into some things that are relating to the market, economic, and sentiment-related topics that are certainly important to, you know, kind of when, when we talk about market uh, performance and uh, where, where we're at as investment professionals. So a little insight into where we, where we are today. And then later in the show, we want to talk about ideas on approaching and setting up a plan, defining quality inside our portfolios. So with that, uh, thanks again, Dick, for joining us. Last time when we got together in July, the S&P 500, I think, was just sitting at north of 18% for the year. And I remember kind of toward the end of that show, we highlighted the fact that we should be, par be prepared for maybe a pullback at some point. And uh, so let's talk about that. What happened after July? Yeah, sure. It's uh, yeah. I think we top, top ticked the exact point in the market on our radio show when we hit the uh, the high, the year to date highs up that eighteen percent mark in the middle of July. So uh, hopefully this isn't an omen when we have a radio show markets go down. But that's in fact what happened. We we had our first drawdown over ten percent uh, for the year you know, from the S and P five hundred, starting at about forty six hundred and trailing down to about the 4150 level. Uh, and within the last week, we had, you know, last week was a 6% up week. So we recovered about half of what we lost, but it was still a, a really good point of, well, I remember leaving that last segment of the radio show, we said, mentally prepare yourself. Things feel frothy, right? And, you know, it, uh, the other thing is a 10% correction really is, is normal. In, mm -hmm. in fact, they actually happen every 1.4 years on average. Uh, so if you think about that, that's every 
you know, 16 to 18 months, you're going to have a 10% pullback. And, and the important thing is, is how we react to that when we, when we see those. Uh, because the reality is we're often in the markets, we're not at all-time highs all the time. We're actually usually in a drawdown, more often than not about the, the data shows about 72% of the time we're in some sort of drawdown. So that means we're not at making new all-time highs. Uh, the opposite of that also means that 30% of the time we are making all-time highs, right? So that's uh, a, a really good number. Uh, just the, the tough part about investing is that 70% of the time you have this idea of, oh, if I, I bought at the peak in July and I lost money, right? And you're constantly uh, feeling that. So that's that's the, the psychology to kind of fight to, to remember that as the market pulls back, that just, you know, really pushes down the spring and allows us to bounce higher, which we saw last week. We saw that 6% rise. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it happened quickly. I mean, we saw a period of, I think, six out of eight weeks where the market was down each week and then literally a rally within the last, what, seven days in the market, the market's been up. So it just proves how quickly things can change in that, it's it's the time in the market, not trying to time the market, right? I mean, we've talked about that and the fact that really that's just something that really no one has been successful at trying to do. And we're going to talk about discipline and portfolio you know, construction and things of that a little bit later in our show. But uh, what would you say right now would be the biggest uh, you know, factor that people are looking at in terms of the rebound that we've just seen? What, what would be the main if, – if there were a main theme – I think the main theme, honestly, inflation has taken a little bit of a backseat, not a far backseat, but a subtle backseat to the movement in treasury yields. Uh, the, the headline has really been bond prices and specifically U.S. treasury yields that were approaching at the very peak 4.98%. Uh, it's so close to that round 5% number that everyone was was watching and maybe that's everyone had the buy button uh, at that level so some orders weren't filled um, as you know yields and prices move inverse of each other so we never actually hit that five percent mark uh, but that was what really threw the markets into a, a tailspin that's six to eight weeks and it's it's funny usually markets you take they say you take the escalator up slow steady and you take the elevator down right there's a mm -hmm. crash uh, and that also is incredibly psychologically taxing. But this time it was a little bit the opposite within this last quarter. We actually took the escalator down and then the elevator up. And within a, a week, we've recovered uh, about half of, of what was lost in the quarter. And, you know, the reason for that, I think, was the 10-year U.S. Treasury backed off a bit. We we weren't at 4.98. Currently, we're around 4.98. Uh, 5, uh, 4.55, 4.6. So uh, again, that's a much higher rate than where we were a year ago, two years ago, uh, but it, it, it's all relative. And so we, we backed off from really high rates uh, to come back here in the in the mid fours. But that's what really, I think, gave the market this, okay, you know, we, we've sold off for five or six weeks. Let's take a breather and, you know, let's Put put the S and P back around 4,300, 4,400. So now I feel like we're kind of back in this no man's land, right? Where we're just waiting for more data. Uh, inflation is going to be key data coming up. Uh, economic growth factors are going to be key uh, data points coming up. 
And then where where treasury yields? Uh, even today, the the U.S. Treasury is auctioning off more bond yields, and uh, what rates will will those achieve? Uh, and the the theme is lower rates good for stocks. If rates continue to move higher, uh, that's bad for stocks and bonds. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, it's always relative to just looking at where things are. Whether you're an equity investor, or a bond investor, you know, compared to last year where we sit today as a fixed income investor, certainly in a much better place than we were a year ago, right? Certainly, yeah. Uh, one thought that comes to mind in terms of this year, you know, we've had, you know, some people come forward over the last several weeks and say, hey, you know, I remember looking at my portfolio a few months ago, back in July, things were looking great, what's happening? Uh, but in terms of that escalator, ride down that you talked about. I think that ties in with one of the charts that you know we're, we were going to kind of talk about today in terms of the VIX. And do you want to explain what the VIX is and kind of how, how this year stacks up against other years we've had in the past? Yeah, sure. So the VIX is a measure of uh, overall volatility. It's measured by taking different prices within the options market. And if you, if you think about it, if those prices within the options market are wider, the market is expecting more volatility. So uh, it's it's complicated in terms of, I, I don't have an actual unit for what the VIX uh, represents, but uh, roughly if you have a VIX between that 50 to 20 range, uh, that's considered a, a calm, you know, relatively normal volatility market. And in times of duress, we actually see VIX spikes. So then the VIX tends to spike and then fall back down pretty quickly, but that's exactly what we had. It, it spikes when the markets come down and, and as the 10 year pulled back and stocks rallied, we had a 30% drop uh, in the VIX. And it, a good investment strategy, I would say, is to buy when the VIX is high, right? Because, but that also is a time when there's peak, peak pessimism and, and peak volatility. Uh, so we saw this 30% drop in the VIX really, really rapidly in the beginning of, of November. Uh, but if you're like, okay, the VIX is low, now it's time we can buy stocks again. Well, that's fine, but we've also missed 6% of the rally. So the, the better strategy is actually to buy when pessimism is at its highest. Great point. Thank you. We're meeting with Dick Schiller, Pavlik Investment Advisors on Money Sense. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after this messages. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group, and I'm here with Dick Schiller. Uh, Dick is our fixed income specialist and chartered financial analyst, a friend of EIG. Before the break, we were talking about a number of things. We're going over some charts today, uh, talking about the fourth quarter market uh, status and just kind of looking ahead here. So, uh, Dick, um, the VIX, you know, before the break, relatively low speaking in terms of where things are now. Do you want to share what kind of what relative to other years where we're at? Yeah, sure. So if you look over the last 33 years, uh, 1990 to 2023, what this chart shows is the average VIX level for every single year in that time period, the last 33 years. Up at the top of the list, not to anyone's surprise, 2008, 32.7, 2009, 31.5. Uh, and even if you go down five or six 
rungs of the ladder you know they have the tech uh, bubble in there 0102 but also 2022 that's where last year where we had uh, a 25.6 reading but this year year to date so far we're at 17 and a half which is ironically exactly right in it's smack dab in the middle of the last 33 years uh, and that really just shows kind of like what we talked about that this year is actually really quite normal you know one 10 percent correction uh, that we'll we'll see. You know, we still have two months of the year left, so it it may pick back up and we may trickle higher. Uh, but so far, year to date, this this really is a a normal year and w- what to be expected with when investing in stocks. Yeah, and I would add that you know somewhere along the line, I, I was reading on this, and last year you referenced 2022, the VIX level was at 25.6, and we had 46 times throughout the year where the market was either up or down 2%. And I think this year, year to date, we're at something like two times the market has either been up or down 2%, which is really unusual, actually. So that escalator, elevator reference you made earlier is is, is kind of interesting. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about you know where the Fed's at right now in terms of interest rates. You hear a lot about them being data dependent, right, on certain things. Do, can you want to share a little bit about what that means and like what are the main things they're looking at right now? Yeah, certainly. And, and I think that Fed meeting was really what propelled the week we had in the markets last week, an up 6% week, really off, off the backs of, of a Fed meeting from Jerome Powell, where at least the markets took it as uh, pretty uh, pr- pretty high confidence that the Fed is done. They're done raising rates uh, he, he's never going to come out and say he's done, but he, he alluded to in the conference uh, post the, the minutes release, you know, risk field balanced. Uh, the, he, he even went as far as to say at, at one point that, you know, there's there's risk that we go too far. And so you can kind of read between the lines to get a sense of where his head is at compared to prior meetings. And it you definitely got the sense that he's done. Now, the those two words are so important that you mentioned data dependency. Uh, that's what they will always go back to. So what are they watching? What data matters? Uh, unemployment, you know, unemployment ticked up to 3.9%. So not a lot, but subtly ticked up. Uh, also, you know, non-farm payrolls, we've had another consecutive month that's now 34 consecutive months in a row really since COVID, but, you know, we're adding 150,000 jobs and that that's a, a pretty big pullback from the 200 to 250 that we used to be adding. So, you know, non-farm payroll, the growth is slowing. That's pretty clear. Uh, the other one that is is kind of frustratingly high uh, has been wage inflation. So that is still up over 4%. And that's something that Jerome Powell and the Fed really wants to see that come down to 2 3%. Uh, we feel like we're still a far ways away from that. That said, we're also at the lowest point since June of uh, 21 on that average hourly earnings number. So it's it's a mixed bag. I think it's very clear that a lot of economic data is softening. Uh, so that really has the market viewing the Fed as as in a wait and see approach. Uh, and you know we're right now the data shows a soft landing, right? These the the debate between soft landing, hard landing. Uh, it, it's clear what we've had so far uh, is definitely soft landing. What what's to come in the future? We'll we'll see, but. You know, you, you can't really call this data that we've been looking at year-to-date a hard landing by any means. So just from where we sit today, the fact that they've raised, I don't know, 
11 times in the last 18 months. What, uh, what are your thoughts on if they pivot on rates or go dovish on, on rates, how quickly that could change in, in terms of what we've seen in the past? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm still a believer in this higher for longer environment. Uh, the, the presentation that we gave this summer, uh, we reiterated that and still believe that to be the case. That said, if if you do hit a recession, especially if it's a deep recession and some of these economic indicators rolls down hard, I think the Fed is going to blink as they usually do, and they're going to lower rates pretty quickly. Uh, the the scary thing is that usually means something breaks. I you know the the economic turmoil in March with those three fairly large bank collapses was was only in March, right? That was only eight nine months ago, but it feels like yeah. a far distant memory uh, that that really was was solved pretty quickly. But you know something like that happening again there there are a lot of regional banks that still sit on massive losses with their held to maturity portfolio so where the market is today expectations are for the fed to keep rates flat until the middle of next year so the first cut is expected to be may and that's from you know a window of 5.25% to 5.5 down to 5% to 5.25% so that's seven, eight months away. That's pretty far. Uh, and, and by the end of next year, hitting 4%. And that again, this is the shortest end of the yield curve. So where the Fed puts this rate really determines where those those out years, the two-year, the five-year, the 10-year, as the Fed has moved rates higher, that's pushed the 10-year higher. It, it pushes pressure up on that part of the yield curve as well. So that's why we were talking about a 10-year close to 5%. Um, but we'll see. You know, the, the Fed, even their own forecasts have a history of not being right. Mm-hmm. Economists' forecasts have a history of not being right. But what we do know is that, you know, this higher for longer is the expectation. And I'll put an asterisk by that, that if if something in the system breaks, my um, guess is that they will not be hesitant to, to drop rates. Because I do believe that they feel like they are in a restrictive stance uh, with, with the inverted yield curve. You know, a, a, an overnight rate of five percent—that that—that's a restrictive stance. They they can't say that they're not being restrictive at this pace. Really, I know that ties really front and center into where people are at with borrowing, borrowing costs, valuations, things of that nature that really are affected by interest rates. Um, I know we do want to touch on housing and the fact that you know mortgage interest rates now are as high as they've been in the last 25 plus years. Um, what are your thoughts on like where the 10-year sits today and then where the spread is over that to current rates? Uh, what, what type of effect is that having on housing? Yeah, sure. So a general rule of thumb for a 30-year fixed mortgage is to add either 2 to 3% onto the U.S. 10-year treasury rate. So you know, and that two to three percent spread really depends on how the banks, how markets feel about uh, you know current economic strength. So the ten-year was at five percent. We've pulled back to about four point five, four point six percent. So if you add two to two to three percent on there, you know that's where you're getting that. Right now, the average thirty-year fixed rate is is at seven percent. So the spread's a little wider, uh, around three percent, but. That's a that's a really expensive uh, price to to pay, especially if you compare that back to the 2021 and prior years when we were talking about 30-year fixed rate uh, at three percent. But 
Um, uh, there are a number of charts that I think would be awesome if we could describe. I know we're maybe running out of time, maybe in the next segment. Um, but the, let, let's talk about this one more, though. That sounds great. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to think about people that were able to lock in at 2.5%, 3%. How does that tie in with their personal, you know, financial planning? And it's created kind of a, a place where people are not moving, right? They're just, they're kind of in their homes. They're not necessarily planning on moving anytime soon because they're kind of hinged to that, right. that low interest rate environment. And that's so. why prices have stayed high because, you know, you don't want to be selling, you, you reset your mortgage rate if you move. Mortgage rates are not portable, mm-hmm. at least in this country. I think they are in the UK. Uh, which is an interesting market dynamic. But here in the U.S., they're not portable. So in, unless you absolutely have to move, uh, which is you know, they call it the three Ds, death, divorce, and dislocation, uh, people aren't moving. They're sitting in their homes, and that's keeping uh, r- real estate prices relatively high. Thank you, Dick. That's great knowledge. We're going to be right back after this break. You're listening to Money Sense. Welcome back to Money Sense. We're here with Dick Schiller, Pavlik Investment Advisors. We were talking about a number of things before the break. Uh, we left off with housing and the fact that you know we've seen a historic change in interest rates affecting mortgages. And we're talking through some charts today that reference some of the factors that we're looking at right now. And you know, with that, Dick, you know, talk about that. What does the affordability index look like today? And what do you have any concerns or, or ideas around that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is is my biggest concern in the market today, and it, it it ties back to what we were talking about in the first sections, where the the Fed has raised interest rates with the intention of slowing inflation, slowing the economy. Uh, but if you locked in your mortgage rate two three years ago at three percent, quite frankly, you're not feeling that. If if you're happy in your home, you're not needing to move. Uh, that that doesn't really impact you. Who who it impacts are the people that that need to go out uh, and use debt financing to to make a home purchase, and that's just gotten extremely hard to do. Some of the charts that I think are are fascinating. This one sourced from CBRE Research shows the premium or discount to buy a U.S. home versus renting it. Currently, we're at fifty two percent. For reference to 2007, 2008, uh, before the the housing crisis, we are at 31%. So that is uh, astoundingly higher than where we were back in 2006. Rents have gone up, uh, so you know they've they've tailed off uh, in terms of growth, but they've definitely gone up in the post-COVID world, but nowhere near the level of uh, increase in the the mortgage rate. So again, you know. It, at the COVID lows, with the average 30-year, the actual absolute low is 2.75. Uh, but currently, the, the most recent reading is 7.8%, which is the highest mortgage rate we've seen since November of 2000, so 23 years. Uh, and that rate is obviously what's being used as the input to calculate uh, for what is your cost to own. So that cost to own has just gotten extremely uh, higher than than the cost to rent, so um, that's my biggest mm-hmm. concern. Really, going forward, is is how are the people that maybe in their twenties, uh, mid twenties, late twenties that are looking to to purchase their first home, if they haven't done that already, you know they're they're kind of stuck right now. Um, unless they're yeah. making 
a ton of money, uh, and you need a ton of money uh, to make the math work uh, with this type of rate environment. Sure. I, I mean, there is that. I remember my first mortgage was pretty close to where they are today in late 90s. And I remember the mortgage banker, I, I worked at a bank at the time, so I kind of had a little bit of an in there. Um, he said, hey, congratulations, you got a really great rate, you know. And I I didn't know better at that point in time because I heard my folks talk about their first house they bought in the late 70s when rates were, you know, 18% or something close to that. So it is very fascinating. Um, but I do remember when I made the decision, it, and it, it was purely based on, you know, a number of things. We're going to talk about planning um, in a little bit here in our fourth segment. But uh, I certainly would encourage anybody out there that's thinking about either moving or buying their first home, you know, just, just to look at it because, you know, we would certainly not want someone to do what they're capable of doing. And, of course, maybe knowing that in some reasonable amount of time in the future that they could refinance, right, when rates hopefully come down. I don't think we're going to see rates back to the levels we saw a couple of years ago, but um, but it, it can still work. Um, in terms of housing, though, I know we do have a shortage in the United States. I think it's something north of six and a half million units. Um, rents, you know, it's all about location. There's still a lot of cash buyers out there, too, so there's competition. But it is fascinating to look at some of these charts. Um, the, uh, the like the mortgage origination, the average loan production per loan officers, it's all really, really down at this point. And it, it, it makes sense as to re really why. Um, it's kind of just been a shock to the system. Yeah, the shock to the system, what, what is down substantially is transaction volume. So, you know, you, you mentioned two buckets of employment there, loan origination. Uh, largely those those bankers are, are paid on commission. And uh, there's there's a chart in here that shows uh, the commission base is down some 60, 70 percent compared to the 2021 uh, era. And they're selling loans not right now at seven and a half percent. You would think the bank would be just gobbling that up, making a ton more money versus uh, back 2021 when they were issuing 3% loans. But the the amount of volume difference is just night mm -hmm. and day. It's it's not even close to making up for the higher rates for the banks. And, you know, you mentioned cash buyers too. That's that's kind of all who's left out there. Uh, if, yep. if you want to sell your home, you better be hoping that uh, someone with all cash is, is willing to come in and and purchase your home. So it's it's the the loan origination people that that are you know their their income is down a lot and then the second time it is a it's a tough time to to be a realtor especially if your primary bread bread and butter is on the buy side. Absolutely. Uh, and you know if you're on the buy side I hope you have some cash buyers just because transaction volumes have really dropped through uh, the floor uh, with, uh, and especially if your buyers are, are looking to use debt because of the affordability stuff that we were talking about. Most definitely. You know, it's interesting when we got together for one of our uh, meetings recently with some clients, you, you talked about the good seats and the bad seats, right? Um, not that anybody who needs to borrow money at, at seven and three quarters to eight percent is in a, in, a, in a bad position. I mean, they may still be able to, you know, to make that work, but uh, that, that just doesn't relate to housing. That also 
flows into commercial lending and you know other types of borrowing. So it's not just housing. But let's talk about the good seats. Let's go back there for a minute because we've had a lot of people come forward talking about money market rates, talking about CDs. Um, where would you put that relative to what a good high-quality bond portfolio would be yielding today? Yeah, and you're exactly right. You know, for for everyone's pain, there's another person's gain. And uh, you know, and w- working with investors every day, if you have investment capital, you know, you have to think about the world positively. That's a mm-hmm. great place to be because we're not sitting here. Rewind like two, three years ago, and it was you're going to make zero percent money markets. Uh, the bond guys at Pavlik will make you two to three percent uh, per year in a corporate bond ladder. And stocks, well, 10%, but who knows, right? And this was pre-COVID. So you know, you, if you want to make 10% per year, well, you're going to have to live through the 7% daily fluctuation of market prices that happened during COVID. Uh, and I remember you know, the, the market, when they, they, when they reached their 7% triggers and they shut down for 15 minutes during the day, that's not a very fun time to uh, to be invested. So that was a couple years ago. Fast forward yep. to today, we have money market funds at five percent to to five and a quarter. Uh, treasury bills, T bills are another way to play it. Uh, Six month bills are over five and a half percent. On the bond side, for the bonds that are maturing, we had a big maturity for our portfolio specifically. Uh, in the middle of September in early spawn, and we have a larger maturity that a lot of EIG clients are in mid-November here, Aspen Insurance. And we, we purposefully did that to back end the maturity structure of this year because we're able to get that capital back and redeploy it. And the, the bonds we're seeing out 10 years down the ladder, if someone has a traditional 10-year ladder, they're all north of 7%. Even with the mm-hmm. rates that have pulled back uh, within the last week, you know, we were, we were looking at FMC Corp. We were looking at GM. We were looking at, uh, you know, a, a number of different issues that are out there and, and solid companies, uh, HP, Oracle, uh, and, and the rates we're able to achieve are, are night and day. It's, it's finally our turn uh, in the sun and in the bond world. And, you know, I, I know there is this this overarching theme of higher for longer rates will, will never go back down. And, I feel like 90% of the investment community is in this higher for longer mentality. And although I do believe that to be the case, when when if something breaks, it won't be higher for longer right. anymore. And that's when the bonds will act as a traditional hedge. Stock prices may fall, but we're going to see a nice jump uh, in bond market values. And that's something that we've struggled with with clients in this rising rate environment for the last two and a half years mm-hmm. has been, yeah, we're collecting interest, but you know we're holding to par, but that bond you bought for 80, uh, 80 bucks two years ago is now worth 70. So yeah, I've made interest, but I've still lost in market value. And, and our, our thesis still remains the same, you know, that at the maturity date, we get our $100 per bond par value back. Uh, and just like in November, we're going to be able to redeploy those at higher rates. So that has me really excited uh, and amped up for, for the future 10 years in the bond market. It does. And when we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit about corporate earnings, where we're at with the S&P 500, and then talk a little bit about the, the stocks that are kind of driving performance this year. And then we will finalize everything with a little planning and and quality discussion around uh, defining quality in their portfolios. We'll be right back. 
sounds great. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group, and today I'm joined by Dick Schiller, a fixed income manager for Pavlik Investment Advisors, joining us. We're talking about a lot of great things today. We've covered uh, the S&P drawdown, uh, peak to trough throughout the year, the volatility index. We've talked about the Fed, a lot of time on housing and interest rates. So uh, one of the things I definitely want to touch on is more on the equity side of things this year. Uh, you can't go through any earnings report or listen to the news without hearing a letter or no two letters ai right um artificial intelligence and the fact that there's different you know applications for this and a lot of development in this space um when we look at the current status of the s p even after we've had this great seven day recovery we're up about 13.5% year-to-date, still below our July you know, highs for the year. But from that standpoint, Dick, I was going to ask you, t- let's talk about corporate earnings a little bit, what the sentiment is there, as well as how those AI stocks have factored in. And if you didn't have them, what, what would be the outcome? Yeah, certainly. So <clears throat> year-to-date... We're in the middle of earnings season, so we have a, a flood of earnings, but the good news is we're also almost uh, done. We're almost through at Disney's reporting tonight, but uh, at this point, about 64% of companies have reported their third quarter quarterly earnings. Uh, and, and the good news is that on a, a gap basis, so ignoring all the adjustments, uh, they're up 19% year to date, over 19% year over year growth. If, if you look at it, an EPS adjusted basis, which you know, sometimes people make the argument that strip out all the adjustments and give me the real gap number. I think it's important to look at both. But uh, even on an adjusted basis, we're still up in the low double digit range. So 10, 12 percent. And this has been the, the biggest thorn, I guess, in the bear's side in this year to date window. You know, you, you rewind back to the fourth quarter of last year and everyone wasn't saying, uh, you know, if the recession was coming. They said, when is it? When is it? It's coming. Is it first quarter, second quarter? And, and part of the reason why we just haven't seen it yet uh, has been this strong earnings report. Mm-hmm. And the the earnings, though, have been driven predominantly by uh, large cap tech. And uh, that's when you refer to the Magnificent Seven. Uh, those are really seven stocks that have made up uh, not the majority. Uh, I'm going to go out and say all of the S&P 500 returns. Uh, the year-to-date S&P 500 is up 14%, but if you look at an equal weighted index, the S&P 500 is down 0.7%. So that spread between those two numbers uh, is 15%, and that's huge. So if you have not uh, been either owning you know, the directly the stocks. So Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Netflix, Tesla, Apple. Um, or if you have some part of your portfolio that has a core position, uh, such as like the SPY, the S&P 500 market weighted index, you have exposure uh, to those names and you've mm-hmm. been benefiting from them. Um, if you're in a deep value strategy or, or, or a strategy that, it really shies away from the big cap tech. 
uh, it's it's been a tough year. There's there's no doubt about it. It's really hard to outperform if if you're not uh, holding these bigger names. But mm-hmm. um, what's really driven some of their outperformance? Well, first of all, uh, it's easy to forget 2022. The Nasdaq was by far the worst performing index, right down 35 uh, percent. It, it's bounced back, not quite at the highs uh, that it was, but it's bounced back the hardest. And then secondly, you know, you can go name by name. Uh, and they really have their own idiosyncratic stories, but you know, Facebook revenue growth up 23%. You know, earnings growth at Facebook up 163%. Right, like Mark Zuckerberg was talking about the year of efficiency, uh, and for better or worse, that meant doing more with less, and that meant layoffs, uh, and on you know, cutting expenses, and also on the revenue side, they they. Economic growth has been resilient enough where they can push ad revenue as their primary revenue generator mm-hmm. on their their platforms, Facebook and Instagram. So you see that number up 23%. So, you know, and we can go through each name. Uh, probably don't have time for, for all of them, but all of them have their own stories as, as to why revenues are up, earnings are up. Uh, and in a period where economic uh, concerns are, are vast, uh, these seven names seem to be weathering the storm uh, and not only weathering, but but really growing revenue and earnings. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, when we see pullbacks in the market like we've seen over the past few months, you know, it, a lot of investors, there's the emotional tie-in with how we approach things. And there are people that look at their portfolios often, sometimes every day. Um, there are others that say, you know what, I have my strategy. That's what we've you know, kind of hired you for, right, to, to make sure we have things right. Um, but one of the things I did want to kind of wrap up with today was talking about defining quality in your portfolio. And just, you know, tying in, you mentioned value. You know, those are great dividend strategies out there, a lot of great companies that are profitable, paying dividends in a down market. Um, so the first thing that I would look at in terms of defining quality in your portfolio is starting with a commitment, you know, really taking the time and wanting to look at willing to put the time and investment into putting together a plan. You know, people can try to do it themselves. They can also go out and I would recommend trying to find the right people to help that have, you know, credentials and experience in the, in the space. Some of the credentials I would look for uh, would certainly be like, like you, Dick, you know, chartered financial analyst, CFP, all of our Ellen Becker wealth advisors here have some degree of, of uh, background or education in that. So also doing due diligence, you know, making sure that you, you know, interview that person, make sure you, you feel that it's a good fit. And then, you know, talking to them about, you know, kind of how they would approach helping you structure your portfolio. So any thoughts on on that from your experience? Yeah, the the first thing that came to my mind, we were talking about AI earlier, and uh, you know, I've I've heard some pundits say that because of AI, all financial planners and wealth managers will be worked out of a job. And I I just laugh a little bit because as you were describing that, I couldn't imagine someone who who's open and willing and and is looking for help, uh, look looking for guidance, uh, because you know this. Investments are not easy. Uh, if if the, if this was an easy job, there truly wouldn't be investment managers needed. But it, it is not easy, uh, and I can't imagine that person, or at least myself, I wouldn't want to go and ask 
chat GPT and AI <laughs> bot how to allocate my portfolio. What what does the interest rate environment mean for me? Um, you know, am I well balanced and diversified uh, between money market fund, yeah. bonds, stocks? You know, it, it I I am a little bit comfortable that I think productivity will increase in our industry, uh, and I think we've seen that already so far. But yeah. I also don't think. AI chatbots will it, replace it's, a tool. it's something that me you know you. eventually we'll figure it out but not everything is AIable right exactly um, exactly so and you know that's the other thing too I mean we talk about investments all the time especially on this specific show but there's so many other things that go into your plan that make it a quality plan or define quality in your portfolio a couple of those things really kind of tie back to estate planning and tax planning um, you know before I joined Ellen Becker I had worked for some other firms that we, you know, we would say we would help people with their estate plan or their, you know, try to tie, hook them up with somebody that could help them with taxes. But we would never really hear like what happened, what the result was. So that's why we started our own tax division here at EIG as a resource for our clients to help create, you know, the best uh, structure for the accounts, you know, titling, making sure that the accounts are titled properly from an estate planning perspective. Um, but really kind of going back to uh, some of the fundamental things like understanding cash flow, right? Making sure that you have the right mechanisms in place either to save in your 401k plan, look at funding Roth accounts, maybe Roth conversions are something that you should be looking at. Um, and then, you know, finally getting to that place we talked about earlier of the right mix of investments, whether or not you should have aggressive tech stocks in your portfolio, should you be more of a fixed income investor and some of those things. So doing your due diligence, um, gaining education, experience, finding the right resources are all things that uh, we believe will help build confidence and create um, a long-lasting successful plan for you. So Dick, any final thoughts before we wrap up today? No, I think that's great. It's it's been really a, a interesting year, probably more dull than what most would have expected coming into the year. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm optimistic. Really across the board, it's the first time where I can say money market fund, not a bad option. Five percent risk free. Corporate bonds, six seven percent, great option. Stocks, great option too. But buckle up because yep. I I think you know volatility. Uh, is, is here to stay with everything going on in the world. Absolutely. And we've we, we, so much more we could cover in this uh, session today. Yeah, a lot that we didn't get to, but we will definitely save that for our next get together. Thank you so much, Dick, for joining us today. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having us. Uh, Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 to 3 p.m. and on Sundays from 12 to 1. If you like today's show and want to know more, please visit us at www.ellenbecker.com or call us. Our phone number is 262-691-3200. As always, we hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Thank you so much for joining us, and everybody have a great day.